Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan, presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 36. Some quick housekeeping this week. Surfing is back. Uh, kind of, but it's the world's best surfers, it's live, and we're on. This weekend commences the WSL Countdown events with the tag team Rumble at the Ranch this Sunday, August 9th, at Surf Ranch Lemoore. This is a mixed doubles team event featuring Carissa Moore, Kalohe Dino, Lakey Peterson, Kelly Slater, Sage Erickson, Felipe Toledo, and more. It goes live at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on WorldSurfLeague.com. Do not miss it. And to get you primed for this weekend's action, Stab's Surf 100 event streams live this Thursday, August 6th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Featuring Kalohe Dino, Griffin Colapinto, and Ian Crane, the Surf 100 is an eventized 100-minute edit from Lower Trestles where you, the viewer, get to judge the surfing and enjoy live commentary from none other than Dane Reynolds, Salema Masakella, and Taylor Knox. You can pre-order the pay-per-view experience now at surf100.tv. And the WSL Big Wave Awards continue to mow through the disciplines and feature some of the most mind-blowing waves of the 2019-2020 Big Wave season. You can check those out at worldsurfleague.com backslash bigwaveawards. Our lineup guest today is not only someone who features prominently in this year's Big Wave Awards, but has spent the past two decades of their career breaking down doors within this discipline. There's someone who undoubtedly carved their own path in the surfing world, electing to pursue toe-surfing frontiers at places like Piahi, Chopu, and Nazare. She suffered horrific and near-fatal wipeouts at these places, and injured public derision from some of the most high-profile surfers on the planet. Yet, she persevered, she recovered, and she now holds the Guinness World Record for the biggest wave ever surfed. She's a nominee for this year's Best Overall Performance and XXL Biggest Wave of the Season Awards. Please enjoy the lineup's low-tide conversation with Brazil's Maya Gabera. The good old clap, take one. That's right. <laughs> How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did, I wanted to be world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once, let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave, get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. Let's talk to your boxes. Well, Maya Gabera joining the lineup at Low Tide. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, how are you doing today? Where are you today? Who are you with? Thanks for having me. Um, I am in Nazareth, Portugal, at home. I am with my two dogs. And that's been, you know, the the last many months. We've been just cruising at home and, you know, surfing now that we can, exercising, training. And crazy enough, we are getting close to the season. So it's kind of the time is flying by. For sure. And and when did you relocate and where did when did your home base become Nazareth? I moved to Nazareth uh, four years ago. Yeah, almost five. And I actually transitioned between um, from the U.S. to Portugal with a stop in Brazil. After 11 years, I went back to Brazil 
for a couple of years or a year and a half when I was um, very limited and dependent of my mother <laughs> because of my spine surgeries and my spine injury. <laughs> and once I became an independent woman again, I decided to relocate then to Nazareth. I was already coming here for the winters. But then I, um, I take the step to to make it uh, permanent. Now, what was what was the spine surgery? Was that a result of of big wave injuries, or was that something that that was something that was a, a longer time coming for you? Yeah, I had three spine surgeries in a row uh, within a year and a half. It was an injury that I was uh, bringing with me since the age of nineteen, around mm. nineteen. And after the accident in Nazareth in 2013, around August of 2014, it became pretty clear that it was getting a lot worse. And I went to, to one surgeon and he was very favorable to doing a surgery. And after I did the first surgery, I had problems. Uh, it didn't go well as planned. And I had to have an emergency second surgery. Mm. And after the second surgery, it didn't go as planned either. And I had more complications, but because I was already with two surgeries, um, all the doctors decided that it wasn't time to touch again. And I just had to kind of ride it out and see how it was going to be on a, on a midterm. And after a year and a year and something, a year and a half, I decided to proactively find a doctor that would accept to take me on a third surgery. Jeez. And you said that that started with an injury when you were 19. What, what was that injury from? Yeah, it was just overused, you know, mm. like I started toe surfing at a very young age, around 18. And I think maybe my muscles weren't um, prepared for all the load and the, the jet ski and pushing things and carrying heavy equipments and um, within two, two years of toe surfing, I started feeling my back, um, a lot and, and it just became kind of a constant of physiotherapy, sometimes better, sometimes worse. Mm. It wasn't just a, a, a one injury that made it, but it was the overuse. Yeah. And how about now? Do you feel like you've fully recovered from the surgeries and you're stronger yeah. than you Yeah. Yeah. Crazy enough. You know, I was told by most doctors that I was um, supposed to retire when I when I had my third surgery right before. And that was that that was kind of a common sense between them. And I fought it. I fought the idea of having to retire because of a, an injury, you know, at the age of 26. And um, yeah, crazy enough, I've I've felt pretty good. Like after the first year after the third surgery was quite complicated still. But once that first year went over, I really started feeling the results and like that the injury had finally settled. And it was kind of like a a final, a final move towards uh, health, health again. Uh, that is amazing. Now, we're right in the middle of the 2020 WSL Big Wave Awards where you're up for women's overall performer and biggest wave. And you've been in the big wave space for two decades at this point. <laughs> I and know. a lot has changed. I feel so uh, old. <laughs> <laughs> the other day I went to sleep and I was like, Big Wave Awards, oh my God, 2007, Maya, 2007, you got your first one. What are you doing? <laughs> You're now entering the prime of your career, though, because you've accomplished so much. But I do want to hear, you know, compared to when you started, like, what do you think the biggest differences in the Big Wave realm have been from your perspective? 
Oh my God, it's 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 a contradiction, you know, because in one hand there's immense difference, and and so many so many things have changed, and faces have changed, and performance have swift switched to a lot of paddling, mm. and you know, Nazareth has entered the scene which wasn't even existent back then, and and on the other side we are still facing a lot of the old, you know, systems and award and a lack of a bigger platform. And so it's it's interesting, you know, it's interesting because in, in some aspects we have evolved a lot and things have changed a lot. And some other aspects, it's it's a lot of the same. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense too, you know, because so much of it, especially when you started, was tied up with the surfing industry. It was exclusively the surfing industry, you know, and mm -hmm. that industry in and of itself has gone through so much change in the last two decades yes. with, you know, um, you know, public companies and buyouts and management changes, et cetera, et cetera, which all impact where they put their money, whether it's in big wave awards or big wave surfers or sponsoring people. Um, and you're right, you know, like I think the, the big wave space, every year we're seeing barriers being broken, you know, whether it's paddle surfing or toe surfing, but that platform that existed in the beginning has gone through so much change and it kind of hasn't resettled yet. Yes, it's interesting to me that I see much more change in the performance and in the athletes than I see in the platform and mm. in the professional side of things uh, as far as the league goes, you know. I never really saw a big change in that aspect, I always felt like it's more of the same. You know, I, I didn't see a huge change. I don't know if, you know, in professional surfing and the competitive side of performance and the tour, I think they have seen a lot more change than we have in our platform. Um, because of course we're secondary within the league. We're not the primary focus. And, um, we, I, I, you know, for me in the sport, what I see the biggest changes are, you know, in Nazareth now being existent, in toe surfing making a very strong comeback with Nazareth, with paddling becoming something uh, dominant in a place like Jaws, where it used to be, you know, toe and only back in the day, um, with the sport becoming younger and younger, you know, like when I started. I was a baby, you know, like I, I walked around guys that were double my age and were in their prime. And and I was just that kid, you know, like it wasn't it wasn't a sport for for teenagers. <laughs> it was a sport for grown up men that had been on tour and were going on a different direction on their second part of their career. And this has changed completely nowadays. Nowadays, you see athletes, you know, at a very young age deciding that they want to charge. That's what they want to do. They want to pursue those swells. They want to be where the biggest, gnarliest, most critical waves are. And they want to specialize on that area. And I, I, we, we didn't have that much of that back in the day. I think that's such an interesting point. Like, it wasn't just that you were a teenage woman doing this. It's there were no teenagers at all. You know, like this was the realm for like older, burlier guys that were in the second sort of phase of their career in a lot of ways. And, you know, there's a saying that is something like the first through the wall always gets bloody. Right. And, and, <laughs> and you with 
your accomplishments and unquestionably being like a pioneer in women's big wave surfing, you've been the first through the wall in a lot of ways. And as a I'm result, still bleeding. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Like as a result, stop, like please. you're, <laughs> but you, you've had to take criticism too on occasion from the big wave community and the surfing community. Oh, and a yeah. lot of that's been, I still unfair. Do. <laughs> you know, so, so I'm curious to get your take on that because Obviously, you've had to suffer criticism at points of your career, but it feels like you've been able to win over a lot of your critics, um, especially lately. Do, do you feel I the hope same? So, you know, that was never the goal. You know, I never looked at my um, at the people that criticized me, and I thought I'm gonna win you over. You right. know, actually, quite the contrary. You know, when people that I really cared for and were um, at times, my heroes criticized me. It was quite hurtful and it was very painful. It was a process for me to overcome that heartbreak. But of course, it pushes you to a place of self-discovery, of really pursuing what you love and what you believe in. And it reassures you that, you know, you have really chosen that path. And no matter what people say, even when they're very important people and their opinions matter a lot within your community and outside your community, you got to push through. So that was kind of like where those criticism came in to me. Um, there was not much I could do. You know, I couldn't I couldn't yell and be like, no, I had to just take it in and it hurt and I had to work. And, and also, you know, it gave me a lot of opportunity to reassess and, and find areas that, you know, I had to work on. I mean, I was never, you know, that girl that was super talented, that came through the ranks and did like competitions and had, you know, that small wave technique, like really good. And so I didn't do a conventional route in the sport. So, of course, there were a lot of um, areas that I had to evolve as an athlete. And sometimes I had to prioritize my big wave surfing game because that's what I was pursuing as a career. So I had to leave to the side, even though I love it, even though I have a lot of fun and I wanted to also go to Indo spend six months, but I couldn't anymore. You know, I had responsibilities and I had to evolve my game in the big wave surfing that it demanded me to go to South Africa and spend months in dungeons and not really touch a 510 that often <laughs> and go to Mexico and be with a gun, you know, in Puerto Escondido for months, years after year after year. So it took a lot of out of the opportunity to evolve in, in um, smaller waves and get that game better. But it was... It was part of the process, you know. Well, and as you said, too, like, it wasn't your goal to kind of prove the critics wrong. Um, but even just to pursue what you wanted to do, big wave surfing is such a rare phenomenon year over year, right? Like, if you're a shortboarder, it's like you can go out tomorrow, film yourself shortboarding, shortboarding waves, or compete next month. There's probably another contest. You're fine and continue to improve. But with big wave surfing, as you said, you actually have to invest in traveling to spaces and spend a lot yeah. of time there. And even then, it's it's such a rare phenomenon for the conditions to come together. Yeah, I mean, imagine when I surfed in 2013, I got the experience to be in Nazareth, you know, on a huge day and I almost drowned. 
imagine how many years it took for me to redeem myself, you know, and, and regain the ability to believe in myself and be like, no, I can do it. You know, like they all think I cannot, but guess what? I just surfed an 80 foot day out at Nazareth and I survived and I took a wipeout, but it's okay. You know, I was rescued. My life jacket didn't get ripped off my head and all the things that went wrong didn't go wrong this time. And so it, it took years and that's the game in big wave surfing, you know, the the patience, the the how critical it is to be in the right place at the right time, how critical it is to travel a lot to gain that experience because yeah, it's a very rare sport and you don't get a lot of opportunities. Absolutely. There's not exactly like a tried and true pathway for for anyone in surfing, even if you want to be sort of a women's shortboard world champion. It's not there's not a consistent I know I need to do this and then this and then this kind of thing. And I think that's particularly pronounced for women. I think that's even more pronounced for women who surf big waves. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in towing big waves? Like where did this happen? Who got you into it? And, and why did you pursue this kind of pathway? Yeah. Um, well, I got... Well, my friends, <laughs> they say that even when I started competing amateur contests when I was 15, 16 at home, I was always the girl that wanted to go outside when the other girls were surfing on the inside waves. So I guess that was like, you know, was with me forever. <laughs> but when I went to Hawaii, I got really interested um, by watching Daddy Aikau in 2004. It was my first time in Hawaii. I was very interested in the fact that there were no girls. Mm. And I saw Jamila Starr coming in that day from the surf that morning. And I was extremely impressed. Like, how can there be so many guys? And how can there be um, like 20,000 people on this beach watching a sport that has not, doesn't have one professional female on it? And, I, and that really stuck to me. Um, on top of that, I also was fascinated by those huge waves and I was fascinated with surfing and I absolutely didn't want to miss a good wave. So Hawaii had a lot of big days, like 10 foot, 12 foot, 15 foot, 20 foot. So if I took that out of my surfing, I wasn't going to surf that much in winter. So I was like, no, that has to be a part of what I do. So combining the fact that I felt like there had to be some woman representation in that professional environment of big wave surfing. There was, you know, Laird and there was um, uh, Ian Walsh and, and a, a lot of uh, Greg Long. You know, those were like the young guys at that time. I felt a lack of uh, woman representation. I wanted to be rep represented in that um, scenario. And Amazing. then big wave surfing and then toe surfing. Sorry, I'm, I cut no, you no. off. Toe surfing came because, and that's true to me to today. First, I love the wave count. I knew that, you know, with the machine, I was going to be able to catch a lot more big waves. And therefore, I was going to evolve in the sport a lot more. Imagine if in one three-hour session, instead of going down two 18-footers at Waimea, you're catching... 30 waves on an outer reef. I mean, that kind of experience is priceless and that really transforms your surfing. So I was a believer in that. And with, with that, I also believed, which I think is um, finally proving uh, by watching the Nazareth contest, 
that the women were definitely going to close the gap in the sport much easier and quicker with the assistance of a jet ski than paddling. Mm. Yeah. No, I think that's that's really apparent if you watch the comparisons between, you know, the the Jaws challenge and the Nazare challenge. It is just yes. one of those things where and also feels like as you said, you know, you were getting into toe surfing as a teenager and sort of your colleagues were probably not too far behind you. So they've had more time to to push in that realm than they have just on the paddle inside of, of big wave surfing as well. Yeah, let's say, well, yes and no, mm. because Justine just started toe surfing maybe four years ago. Paige has been paddling Jaws for more than four years. Mm-hmm. If you see the evolution that has been... Uh, happening with Justine's performance at Nazare, and you compare the evolution that I see, let's just put the contest as a comparison. Mm-hmm. I think the gap is closer in the woman's side, toe surfing Nazare, than Jaws. And there's not much of a difference there in the years. Do you think Paige would agree with you? I don't know. <laughs> I I think so. I mean, if you watch the final, the 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 heats, you know how many wave the wave count of the woman, the size of the wave where they take off. I think the Nazareth Toe Challenge, um, the gap was smaller with the assistance of the jet ski. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it makes sense. I, I think like there's so much in any kind of paddle surfing in terms of positioning. And as you said, you're just not getting the same frequency of of waves. You know, you're just getting way more waves in toe surfing. So you're able to kind of hone that skill set a lot faster. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The evolution tends to to be faster when you have a wave count that is helped by a jet ski, I believe. Of course. I want to get into a couple more parts of, of your early career, but first we're going to take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors. So, so looking back to when you were younger, um, I, I'm always curious when, when we talk to world-class surfers about was there a moment when you realized you were good, you know, or was there something that happened for you? Was it a sponsorship? Was it an event? Was it a particular session where you're like, I think I'm good at this and I think this could be my career. Did you have something like that? Oh my God, I'm going to, I'm going to have to start with, I do not consider myself a world-class surfer. Oh, I mean, you're a (laughs) Guinness world record holder. You've got, you know, endless amounts of XXL big wave awards, like come on. I I specifically went through one path and and that one particular thing I do well, but I'm, I, I'm not a a complete world-class surfer, but there was a moment when I was 18 I was on the beach in, in Waimea Bay. Um, it was February 6, 2006, Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> and yeah, and Waimea was really big. It was like 20 feet, like close outset. It was like one of those important Waimea Bay days. And I paddled out and I surfed like three waves and I came in safe. And that day, I think for me, I realized that I probably had what it took to pursue that sport professionally. I was young. I was determined. I could, you know, overcome that very strong fear that comes before really important sessions. I could handle the pressure and I could expose myself to a certain degree of unknown that I think was um, critical in the sport of big wave surfing. So I think that day was a, a pretty big mark. And and just the amount of stoke I had when I came in, I was like, yep, 
I'm hooked. <laughs> Maybe I'm never going to get paid to do this, but this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting you brought up the payment part of it because you had some very high profile sponsors um, in the course of your career. You're one of the most, you still remain one of the most high profile women in the sport of surfing. Because there wasn't, because you broke so much ground in women's big wave surfing and women's toe surfing, what were the conversations like with your sponsors when you were younger? Were they saying, just pursue big wave surfing? Were they trying to get you to do, you know, a QSCT pathway? Were there, were there other conversations that were happening for you with your, your sponsors? No, I must say, Dave, I'm not the person that sponsors love. <laughs> well, why is that? I'm, I'm a fighter, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all, always uh, pursuing a path that people not always agree with and see the, um, the value or want to value. And, um, you know, our industry is very male dominated, has always been, but even more in the early days. And to have a young Brazilian girl to stand up inside companies and be like, I want to be paid fair. Mm. You know, I'm doing my job. I'm risking my life. I don't serve like the guy on your paychecks, but I, I have to be paid what my image is worth and the work I'm, I'm, I'm doing for you is worth. And that was never really taken lightly. <laughs> you know, that was always um, very questioned. Um, so I was always somebody in the companies that would fight and fight for the athletes and fight for what I believed in and for what I thought athletes deserve to get which often they don't get. So um, I never had any sponsor tell me what to do because <laughs> I would never do it. <laughs> you know, I was always telling them what they should do <laughs> and they would not do it too sometimes. So it was, there was, there was always tension, you know, and there, there was always tension in my relationships because I, I tended to, to hold them to the highest standards like I do with myself and my job. And that's not always... Um, uh, taken well. Yeah. And I mean, I think you can see that across all disciplines in surfing in the surf industry over the last couple of decades. There's been a lot of teething as people have tried to wrestle with like, okay, well, what, what is the actual platform for men surfing? What is the actual platform for women surfing? How do we create equitable platforms? And there's a long way to go. I mean, admittedly, there's a long way to go for the WSL as well. Like we're still learning and trying to get it right and getting it better. And even in the last few years, it has gotten a lot better in some parts, you know, but yeah. it is one of those things that it hasn't been perfect. And it's one of those things that it also there's this weird imbalance. And, and you know, I talked to Pat O'Connell a lot about this, too. And it's the industry for so many years kind of succeeded in spite of itself, right, where it's like, we're just making more money, we're making more money, we're making more money. And there wasn't a ton of why is this working? Or, or what's working and what's not. It was just working and everyone's kind of patting themselves on the back because of it. And then when the, the whole economy in 2018 kind of cratered and everyone had to start asking those questions, there just weren't answers, you know? And so I think since then there's been a lot of like questions and answers of like, okay, well, what did work? What's going to work moving forward? It's a different world. How do we create platforms that really celebrate what people do? And from my perspective, how do we stabilize those platforms so they're going to be there year over year? How, how do the WSL Big Wave Awards, in your case, grow every year and become a better investment for athletes to participate in over years? And um, 
yeah, it's it's something that I think a lot of groups haven't figured out yet. Yeah, it's 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 complicated, you know. Surfing is a very complicated sport when you uh, translate it into money, sponsorship, viewers, fans, how to involve them, how to portray it the best way, awards. It's it's complex, you know. I don't think there's just one answer. I think there's a lot of talking and debating to do about every single aspect of it. I mean, you and your personal profile, I, I'm curious if, if your sponsors had anything to do with this, because I was working at the ASP at the time, uh, you know, 2009 ESPN Award for Best Action Sports Athlete, 2010 Teen Choice Award for Best Female Action Sports Athlete, 2012 ESPN Body Issue, you know, XXL Big Wave Awards winner four years in a row, uh, Guinness World Record. Y- your profile was so, so big. Um, you know, at a time where, as we talked about, it wasn't the traditional, you know, shortboard championship tour CT world title person. Was that something in terms of pursuing the media and pursuing your image? And, and is that something that you you did personally or is that something that you kind of worked with your sponsors or management to achieve? Um outro to you that th- there was a, a, a part of luck in it, mm. timing. Um, I also think that the luck comes from from my vision, you know, also. I had the vision that that space had to be filled and that space was going to be important once filled. Mm. And I made sure that I filled that open space. And it's interesting because it was so open, the space that I filled, that I was Brazilian in an age that Brazilians were not very celebrated in the surf industry. I was a woman in an age that women didn't have a big, big space in the surf world. And I was still able to be celebrated by the surf industry and achieve a lot of things in the United States, which shows to me that timing and vision were everything at that time. Because years later, um, I was slowly pushed out of that scenario um, by having other people to compete and shine and be taken under um, sponsors and the U.S. media. And once, once also I started to push more and more the limits and to risk myself more and to be somebody that spoke out and and had opinions and really pushed sponsors, you know, in certain ways, I was also a little bit like put aside. Mm. So I really feel like a shift, you know, from the beginning of my career when I was very mostly welcomed by the surf industry. I had Billabong, I had Red Bull. There was nobody that was trying to fill in my spot. The spot was free to be taken and I took it uh, well, you know, I I was very very dedicated. That was my life. I was young. I I, I had the looks, you know. <laughs> I don't think myself as pretty, but I'm not ugly, so I could do, do photo shoots. I could play the whole part, and it worked in my favor. But as soon as I overstepped a little bit, or there was more to fill that space, I also felt like that shift. Mm. You know, it, it almost feels like an unfair double edged sword, right? Because you had a vision that you believed in that you had to fight to achieve, and you ended up achieving all this success 
I would say inside and outside of surfing, right? Because some of these spaces like ESPN, Teen Choice Awards, I know that at the ASP and in the industry and with sort of the shortboard side of things, there were publicists just killing themselves trying to get their surfer in that space, which you had achieved, right? Um, which is ultimately kind of what your sponsors want. Like there, it's like, Oh, this is great. Like this is Maya's out there. She's in front of a totally new audience. Like she's inspiring people. She looks fantastic. And that is ultimately what we want for our company. But as you said, you, you know, first first through the wall, right. You created this pathway through being, you know, to sticking to your vision and it opened up space for people to come in behind you and, and, and move into that space. Yeah, which is good, but um, there was a point where I felt, I don't know what word to to use it, but, you know, once I had that, um, let's say, an accident in Tahiti on on Code Red, you know, I was heavily criticized. I was heavily criticized within Billabong, which at the time was my sponsor, you know. Um, I know that people very high in Billabong, Um, said that I should have never been out there, you know, that I didn't have the skills, that I was way out of my league. Um, Kelly criticized me heavily and sent me private messages. And to me, it was was a kind of a bullying um, to receive messages like that in private, telling me that I was risking everyone's life and that I should stop before I die. Mm. And, you know, after that... Um, then came Laird, you know, in Nazareth and all this momentum that I had that nobody was questioning my abilities, the place that I was feeling, the things that I was doing, um, the questioning and the criticism became very, uh, predominant around my career. And it was a moment that, you know, Billabong decided to drop me, um, some years later, Red Bull decided to drop me. And I became this person that I think people were scared <laughs> to like um, put a stamp on, you know, because I was at times pushing the boundaries just a little bit too much and it was uncomfortable. I almost would say that um, like I can appreciate, I don't even think it's fair to say criticism, but just a bringing up a point of saying, look, if, if someone gets into a dangerous situation, it can endanger the people around them because they have to to save that person. But at the same time, we've seen this time and again with with men in the big wave space, all the time pushing the boundary, being rec- I mean, reckless in, on occasion, but certainly being unsafe and endangering other people. And it doesn't feel like the level of criticism breaks through into the public, right? Where it is, this person is being unsafe and they're endangering people. That that felt very unfair to you and and i mean it's not hard for us to say that it's like likely because you're a woman in a lot of ways yeah well you know what what it felt to me was that every time i made a mistake which i make mistakes you know i still make mistakes and i'm still gonna make mistakes in the future people had a microscope on me and my mistake just blew up (laughs) and it became like the forefront of everyone's mistake. Doesn't matter everyone's mistake. Like, look at Maya, she made a mistake. Right. And, and it really got on the way for me to like allowing myself to improve at times because I was so afraid to fail. I was so afraid to be put in a scenario of criticism again, like that from, you know, legends of the sport um, I remember, you know, just recently in the contest, you know, I was the only woman to do a 
tow and contest drive and surf. And I was super scared. Like, imagine if, you know, now this is my first time in a contest in the WSL. And imagine if I fail. Imagine if, you know, I hit Seb with the ski on his head while I'm trying to do a crazy last minute rescue. Like, oh my God, this is going to destroy me again. And this is the reality I have to deal with because I'm doing those things. You know, I'm putting myself out there. So I, I, I should have the right to fail like everyone else has. But I, I don't feel like I was allowed much to fail. And I didn't want people to just look at me and, and not say anything. I would have much appreciated people like Kelly and Laird sending me a private message and being like, look, I think if you go in this direction, like, you know, this would be much safer. This is the type of training that I think would like take you to the next level of your skill. Like, I think you're lacking on this. Like I would die for those things, you know, like to know how to improve, but to just bluntly judge me. And, and always when I'm down, it just, it's, it's hurtful. Well, I mean, even to have a direct conversation one-on-one with you, like they could be as blunt and critical as possible and you can have a back and forth and you can appreciate where someone else is coming from and they can appreciate where you're coming from. And in my experience, that always goes so much better than using the media to have a conversation. It's just like that never, never, ever works. I can only imagine like everyone has to deal with the same possibility of, of, of making a mistake or just having something go bad, especially in big wave surfing. For you in particular, having gone through what you've gone through, having to do all that, knowing in the back of your head that it's going to be blown up you know, you know, and it's going to be outsized compared to really anybody else must just be completely unnecessary pressure that you need to have during those situations. Yeah, it adds it adds a layer of stress um, (laughs) for sure, you know, but every time that also I go out there and I prove to myself that I can have a successful day, you know, it, it all went well, I didn't make a mistake. It gives me more strength to expose myself again into that situation because at some point, you know, I'm going to fail. I hope I hope not, but you know, it's it's kind of a reality I have to face. So, I just want to add to to my own self-confidence as many successful days as possible. So, I know to myself that I'm capable. Was there anyone in your circle or in the big wave community during these years where you were you were having a lot of challenges and a lot of criticisms and a lot of doubts that was there for you and encouraging you to push on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can talk about some people that um, were harsh on me, but there were a lot of people on my side. And, you know, uh, throughout many, many years, Carlos was somebody that um, was on my side and also took a lot of the criticism with me and had to take a lot of it himself uh, for me. So I appreciate that a lot. He believed, he was somebody that truly believed in, in my potential and, and um, really helped me to evolve as the, as, to, to the athlete I am today. And most recently, definitely Sebastian. I mean, not only he has helped me get to where I am today after my spine surgeries and you know, my trauma in Nazare, um, it was not easy to overcome uh, the near-death experience, the three spine surgeries, and to go back and to allow myself 
to put it all on the line again um, to surf a big wave. Um, that was that was very hard, you know, to like understand that I still wanted that that bad, that I was willing to go through what I had gone, which I knew how hard it was and how long it took, you know. So to come to peace with the fact that I still wanted it was hard in itself. And um, Sebastian gave me a lot of tools, a lot of tools and the safety department and the and his experience with boards, with um, all his experience out there that were essential to take my confidence to where it is today. And on top of that, you know, um, when we first started hearing about the contest, you know, I was never going to be like, yeah, I'm your team. You know, it didn't matter how many years we were surfing together. Like that was a big responsibility. I mean, this is a guy that has all the chances to win something like that. And to, to have him believe in me, you know, to be like, hey, do you want to team up? Not only I think, you know, you're going to get me the best waves, you're going to save me from the worst scenarios, but also if I put you on a bomb, you're going to go down that bomb because we need points. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's huge, you know, for a woman, that is huge. For a guy to to believe in a woman to that extent is just, I think it says a lot. It says a lot to his character and it it definitely gave me, the boost of confidence um, throughout those years that I needed to be able to overcome the difficulties. Yeah, and I and I want to get to. I mean, you've arguably accomplished some of the most important things in your career in big wave surfing, and as you know, in terms of anyone that's accomplished anything in big wave surfing in recent years. And I do want to get to that, but first, we're going to take one more break to get a quick word in from our sponsors. So. We're moving on from a really challenging period for you, you know, 2012, 2013, you had some some really uh, horrific wipeouts, you were, you were getting sort of dragged in the surfing world, but you had some people around you, and I think mostly from what I'm hearing, inside yourself, a belief that you wanted to be, to continue to pursue big wave surfing, to continue to push the limits, and and you really have, and, and I want to talk a little bit about your pursuit of uh, the Guinness world record for the biggest wave ever surfed uh, by a woman with a 68 footer at Nazare. Can you talk to us about that being a goal for you, whether it's a Guinness world record or not, just going after that achievement? Well, you know, it was in the back of my mind, really, Dave, because I think when you go through a near-death experience and when you experience uh, an injury like I did that puts you in bed for a few years and makes you so limited that you can't really prepare your meal, um, I think a world record becomes very secondary. <laughs> and um, I even felt like I, at times that I didn't deserve to ask God for such thing, you know, because just to have my life and to have health again was enough, you know, I shouldn't be that greedy, you know. And for years, I just worked, I just trained, I just rehabbed, I just studied the place. I did, you know, for a couple of seasons, my main thing was doing rescues and all I did was drive and, and compliment Sebastian's team as, as a, a rescue driver. So I got to learn about Nazareth so much 
And that was my main goal. My main goal was to learn, was to spend as many hours in the ocean as possible. I was still very limited as far as what I could do with my body and my mind. You know, I was um, diagnosed with anxiety disorder in 2017, um, been doing treatment since. So I was hospitalized many times in that year um, because of my anxiety um, with very strong physical um, symptoms. Um, a lot of dizziness, a lot of confusion, a lot of, um, I would start throwing up and never stop. So I'd have to be hospitalized. So all those things just made for the world record to be a very distant reality. Um, and to think that, you know, that was me in 2007 going in and out from hospitals after going in and out from hospitals for three years because of my back, here I am going in and out because I can't stop throwing up because I'm dizzy as hell because I can't focus and I can't leave the house. So to talk about a world record at that time was absurd. You know, I had, um, I've been shooting this documentary for eight or 10 years with this amazing woman. And a few, a few times I, I, um, pursued her to stop. And in 2007 was one of 2017 was one of those times we sat down and I told her and I was like, look, you should not go to Nazareth this season because I can barely leave my apartment. <laughs> like, this is serious, you know, like, why do you expect me to surf well? <laughs> Like, I, I can't do anything right now. And um, she secretly came and, and, and rented a house right next door to me. So she's been <laughs> here since, um, my neighbor. And uh, so when I started the season in 2000, 2017, 2018, it was just about let's evolve, you know, let's surf every swell. Let's, let's try and gather experience. And I felt, you know, the momentum. I felt... The evolution, you know, in October, November, December, I was starting to feel like, wow, you know, I can, I can really, um, I'm really pushing it again. And I'm like, there was one moment in November when I got a, a really big wave, um, the day that Kosha broke the record and I was swallowed at the bottom of the wave and I had a very bad wipeout. It, it was, it was the first and only time since that I felt a close enough sensation to what I felt in my accident underwater. Mm. And I kind of panicked a little bit and, and Seb tried to get me, he couldn't, and he saw that I was on panic mode. And that was a very important experience to me. That really boosted my confidence because I understood how much my head in that particular scenario had tricked me and had made me more desperate than I actually needed to be in that moment. And um, so that was November, December, January, when that swell came around. I had, you know, some luggage with me that I was feeling like maybe I could do something special. Maybe it was time to put things on the line and go out there on a really big day with somebody like Eric at the time, Eric Ribier, who I absolutely trust, who was on the, our team for years. So it was somebody that I was very close, that made me very calm. You know, at that time, everyone that was around me knew about my situation, knew that I was on medication, knew that they had to be gentle with me. And I was gentle with myself. So it happened. I don't even know how. 
<laughs> I, well, I know through working, you know, but but um, through working a lot and being extremely dedicated to this place and this wave, but um, the timing was was quite crazy. It, it was not everything perfect. It, it seems like such a hard thing for anyone to wrap their head around, right? Because to be a big wave surfer at the level that you are, you have to be in supreme physical and psychological condition, it seems like. You're, you're really on the edge of what is humanly possible in probably the most hostile environment on, on earth for human beings, right? So to hear you having to go through your spinal surgeries and just saying, look, you know, I wasn't even able to make myself meals, like that was, you know, surfing Nazare was just so far from where I was at. And then having to work through anxiety, you know, as recently as 2017 and, and right before you, you sort of set the big wave world record, um, it, it is unbelievable. You, did you feel once you got through that session that it was just, did you feel like you'd, you'd kind of move to another phase for your life or just in terms of your health, um, you know, physically, mentally and, and confidence wise? Something switched. Mm. I think, I think something inside myself um, a place where I carried a lot of pressure and where, you know, failure was still in effect for me, you know, where I still doubted myself and I doubted whether I was ever going to have like a moment of success and recognition in the sport again. Those doubts, I think, um, went away. Like I felt like I had uh, fulfilled my my satisfaction that I was happy with myself, that I was proud of myself. And that was very important for me to take on a, a, a different chapter of my life. It made me more relaxed. And I think finally it gave me that little switch on I can fail again. You know, can I be allowed now? Right. <laughs> can, can you guys allow me to fail again? Because I, I kind of want to fail again. You know, I kind of need that allowance to be able to like move on from here. Well, it makes because, you a bet, probably makes you a better surfer too, right? Where it's like the pressure's gone. I'm now free to, to be free really and, and, kind of, and kind of become a better surfer in a lot of ways. Yeah, of course. Of course. It gives you that, that freedom again, you know, to, to not be worried so much about others, which is always a challenge, you know. We think that we don't get affected and we we focus on not getting affected by outside voices and all, but the fact is that it's very hard, you know, it's very hard. We're athletes, we're exposed. And a lot of what fuels us is the recognition, you know, is is failing and working towards that next possible success. And when you take away the possibility of the athlete to fail and to work towards their next possible win, you kind of kill it. You're only 33. So not even in the prime <laughs> of your career. I nope. feel it. That's I how I'm praising it. it for sure. <laughs> Do you, do you, do you think about your legacy today at 33? Do you think about what you want it to be? Do you think about what it already is? And, and if so, you know, how would you describe that? I don't think much about it, but I am happy to know that the things that I had to go through, no other woman will, at least not the same things. And that gives me a sense of relief, you know, because they will have a better chance to evolve 
and become better surfers quicker than I did, I believe. And and I think that's important to me. I think, um, you know, to break a record now should be easier than the one I had to establish. You know, to fail now should be more acceptable than the times I did fail before. Um, to be criticized in public as a woman should be not as acceptable as it was in the past, like when I was. So that gives me some kind of comfort. Yeah, and I mean, I think, as we talked about a few times during this conversation, being first through the wall, like the wall's now open, you know? And and I think even if you had never achieved the, the big wave world record, even if you, even if all your achievements were kind of locked up into your, your early 20s, that's still more than enough to, to, to break that wall th- over for, for other people to come through. But, you know, I think the fact that you're able to, to harness all that energy and achieve more things is just even more impressive. And as, a, as we've talked about, you're far from done. So it's really impressive. Uh, thank you. Yeah, we keep on working, you know, as long as it's fun and exciting and the waves are out there, I think uh, we keep on going out. So we put it out to the Instagram community to see if anyone had questions for you, and they did. Um, so we've got a few questions from our, our Instagram followers. Okay. Um, first one is Sven Koenig Surf asks, do you have any advice to get mentally or psychologically fit after a big wipeout or an accident? Ooh, um, to me, it's been always through work, you know, um, finding things that I wasn't very good at and evolving in that and having the tools to survive. You know, for an instance, in Tiahupu, when I had my accident, you know, I've always been asthmatic since a little child. And I never thought my lung was very developed, which wasn't. And right after the accident, I thought, okay, this is an area that there is room for a lot of improvement on my part. And I started free diving very seriously and doing a lot of breath hold training. So, so that really works for me. I still do it to this day. I have a trainer here just for breath hold, just for pool work. And that's something that helps me tremendously, not only in my mental state, which of course, you know, if you know you're prepared and you know you're capable um, to survive a, a long hold down, of course, that's going to help your performance a lot. But also when it happens, your physiology is prepared and you're not as tired and as scared once it's over. So you use less energy and that's that's good for your endurance overall. So that's kind of like the way I see it. Um, find things that you can improve on and it can make you feel stronger mentally and, and in your body. That's great. Sully Ray 123 asks, and you just brought this up, will you ever go back and surf Big Chopu again? I, I hope so. I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever go back to Chopu when it's big. That was crazy times. That was awesome times. I mean, that's um, another spot too that that even even at Chopu, what what people consider to be able to paddle into has changed a lot. Like in the last yeah, few years too, which lot, is intense. Right? Yeah, totally. But um, those tow days are still tow days. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> <For sure>. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know that was that was some of the craziest times in my career. Those big days. I don't know if I'll ever go back there um, for those particular days, but I, I have, um, I keep them in a very special place in, in my memories. 
All right. And Sully Ray, she actually added, or he, not sure who they are. <laughs> Sully Ray123 had a, another question, which I thought was pretty good. And it was earnings. How do you survive? Which I think is actually interesting for any surfer, but particularly in big wave surfing. You know, how do you make a living year over year at, at this point in your career? Yeah, it's, uh, I think everyone's a little different. Lately, the past few years, I have really switched from sponsorship that traditional sticker on your board, um, hat, clothes, to more of, you know, public um, advertisement, campaigns, social media posts, which I think has taken over a lot of the marketing strategies for a lot of companies, um, documentary appearances, um, event appearances, uh, motivational speeches, um, yeah, whatever is reasonable and I can do and it's true to my core values, you know, I'll do um, as a job, um, representing, of course, the image that I created for myself and the sport that I do and the values that I hold. All right. So those are the Instagram questions. Um, we have one more segment and this is our lightning round. So we've got 10 okay. questions and you answer mm -hmm. as fast as you can. Uh, I'm not very fast in answers. <laughs> you see, my answers are like the longest ever. No, no, no. They, the longer, the better. I'm all for it. If you could only have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad, bonzer, or finless, which would you have? Ooh. Ah, uh, thruster. I'm almost twin, but thruster. <laughs> Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Burrito. I'm not neither, but. Last book you read? Uh, Michelle, uh, Becoming. Best surf film ever? Best surf film ever. Pfft, I don't know. I don't watch much surf films. <laughs> uh, one wave you never have to go back to? I never have to go back to. That I don't want to go back to? Yakutat in Alaska, way too cold. <laughs> If you only get to surf one wave the rest of your life? I'll be happy in Nazare. Best person to share a lineup with? Uh, Sebastian. We have a lot of fun together on the ski and we catch a lot of waves. Worst person to share a lineup with? Ooh. Ooh. That's, that's tough. I cannot say. <laughs> <laughs> but you have someone, I'm sure. Chumbo. He's way too hungry. <laughs> Catches way too many waves. All right, last question. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by... Going for a bike ride with my dog Stormy this afternoon. Maya Gebert, thank you so much for coming on the lineup. Good luck in the Big Wave Awards and good hunting uh, this you. winter in Nazare. Thank you. So that's it. That's the lineup presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold's conversation with Maya Gabera. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Maya for her time and her candor. And make sure you check out the WSL Big Wave Awards at worldsurfleague.com backslash big wave awards. Also, make sure you mark your calendars for Stab's Surf 100 this Thursday, August 6th, and the WSL's Rumble at the Ranch this Sunday, August 9th. This episode is produced by Ryan Fawcett with art direction by Jason Penning. Thanks to both of them and thanks to our sponsors for supporting these conversations. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are and we'll see you next Tuesday.